Lord, I pray that where two or three would gather in your name, that you would be among them or in their midst. We're counting on that today. We're counting on your Holy Spirit giving the message that is bringing it home to our hearts. We depend upon the fact that you will be here to teach us and to show us those things that are necessary for our own spiritual development so that we might enrich others and make an impact upon others. In Jesus' name, Amen. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is intermingled with the peoples of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and the rulers have been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair on my head and beard, and I sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. When I first became a Christian, I heard a new term, a new vocabulary word used by Christians, and that was the word world. And I really didn't know what they meant. They'd say, well, that's of the world, and you're being worldly. And we don't want to be of the world. And I would think, what are these guys talking about? Everybody's of the world. We're in it. I couldn't figure out what they were talking about. It was this secret little term. Of course, now I speak Christianese fluently. And I know that world is in reference to a world system that is opposed to God. That there's a difference between a, the world kingdom and the kingdom of God, which are in effect at odds with each other. And that we designate certain things as being worldly and certain things as being godly or spiritual. But it is interesting that we have sort of current Christian laws as to what is worldly and what is holy. Uh, thou shalt not drink. Thou shalt not dress too fashionably. Thou shalt not have season tickets to the opera. Thou shalt not... Go to movies. Now, on some of them, I tend to agree a little bit. I think some movies are garbage and they pollute your mind and your heart. Thou shalt not smoke. And we have our little laws that say, well, this is holy and this is worldly if you do those things. In some of these issues, I believe that we strain at gnats and we swallow camels. We say, this is not of God. And if any, we judge outwardly, don't we? As John White wrote, he said, take a 60 year old maiden lady. Never in her life has she drunk even a glass of sherry. She has never owned a TV set. She has never, oh, but never smoked a cigarette. She tithes religiously. Her hemlines are low. Her neckline is high. 
Her jewelry is anonymous. She attends the Wednesday night prayer meetings without fail. Yet she gossips. She is self-righteous. The rumors she spreads about the church young people are not only inaccurate but damaging. She calls the pastor almost every day with some new and juicy bit of scandal. She is a strainer at the gnats of movies, TV, and dancing, and a swallower of the camels of gossip, divisiveness, judgmentalism, and unkindness. She will always be a frustrated and unhappy woman. Now, I'm not advocating, let's all go out and have a beer today or smoke or whatever. I'm not condoning any of that, but I'm not condemning those things because the issues go far beyond what is outward. I have come to believe that worldliness is geographical. It really is. You see, in America, you can't have a beer. And you can't smoke. And you can't go to movies. Yet we don't think about anything about going 70 miles an hour on the freeway. Or obesity. Some things that other cultures would condemn in the Christian community. Now, you could go to Germany and many pastors after their church service Sunday morning will go to the pub and discuss elder and deacon type issues. That's where they'll have their meeting. It's real interesting. When I go to India, it is worldly for a pastor to have a mustache. So I usually rent one before I go over there. No, I don't do that. It is worldly to wear blue jeans in India. It's a form of rebellion. It is godly to wear a white shirt when you're a Christian. Over in Japan, they expected me to wear blue jeans. That's the norm. They don't care about what your face looks like or if you have a mustache or a beard. And yet in Japan, everybody plays this game called pinball. I mean, I saw an 85-year-old person just leaned over pinball machines for a hours. And it's a form of gambling, actually. They pay some money and how many little pinballs they win, they can get money or food or so forth. And Christians are involved in that and they don't think it's worldly. Yet worldliness seems to be geographical. Well, it's okay here and it's not okay here. Now, the Bible talks about being holy. In the book of Leviticus, it says, be ye holy for the Lord is holy. The priests wore on their heads a sign that said holiness unto the Lord. And that's the idea that we get here in verse 1 where the leaders came to Ezra and said, the priests, the Levites, and the people of Israel have not separated themselves from the people of the land. This idea of being separate, being different, being holy. We have turned separation, though, into a merit system, a legal system, a pride versus guilt system. We feel proud that we pledged X amount of dollars to the missionary last Wednesday night. But we feel guilty if we defer to pay that. We feel guilty if we've missed two midweek Bible studies in a row. We feel proud that we don't own a television set, but we feel guilty because we watched Max Hedrum last Friday night at somebody's house. It's a system based on guilt or based on, I feel proud because I did or didn't do this. It is a merit system. We've turned it into the wrong thing. But there's several 
lessons in these verses of Scripture. And there's a few in particular that I want to bring out. Number one, that separation from the world is a law of spiritual life. Now that's pretty obvious just by the reaction that Ezra has when the people say, Ezra, you wouldn't believe what's happening. Man, I'm looking all around Israel and the people and even the leaders are intermingling the holy seed. They've married pagan wives and they're not even thinking twice about it. They're becoming more worldly. They haven't separated themselves. Now Ezra didn't say, well, so what? Ezra tore his garment. He sat down astonished. And then everyone who trembled, verse 4, at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. Now I want to briefly share with you what separation is not before I tell you what separation really is. Separation, first of all, is not local. That is, the Canaanites and the Israelites lived in the same country, in the same town. They worked next to each other. And this is the situation that we're in. We live next to Canaanites. We work with Canaanites, unbelievers. Some are even married to Canaanites. Maybe you've become a Christian and your spouse hasn't become a Christian. And so you find yourself yoked to a Canaanite, to an unbeliever. Or perhaps your spouse is backslidden. Or perhaps you just disobeyed the Lord and married on your own, an unbeliever. I don't know. Now, does that mean that you find yourself in this situation and sever that and just leave your husband or your wife now? No. That's what Paul talked about in Corinthians. Many of the Corinthian Christians were in the same boat. That is, they had realized, you know what? I'm married to a pagan now. I've become a Christian. My husband or my wife is not a Christian. And there's a serious problem here. There's an unequal yoke. And besides that, I see a foxy little Christian over there. Well, bye, honey. See you later. And they were having the tendency to leave that relationship and go grab hold of another relationship. And Paul said, no, you don't do that. You stay put. So separation is not local where you just separate yourself from the people who are worldly. In fact, Christians make grave mistakes in cutting off all ties with people who are non-Christians. I believe that's a mistake. Now, I believe we shouldn't do what they do. But that we shouldn't totally sever every relationship with unbelievers because we tend then to cut the nerve of what they're feeling. Because we become isolated into a little Christian community. Jesus prayed in John 17, Lord, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but that I, I pray that you keep them from the evil one. Don't isolate them. Preserve them. And there's a difference between preservation in the world, which is separation, and being isolated from the world. There came a time in church history when the church decided they wanted to become pure. They wanted to really serve the Lord without the temptation of the world. So the church, in a sense, took its robes and drew them close and wanted to get out of the way of all the people who had spiritual cooties. And they wanted to withdraw into monasteries and form little communities way in the middle of nowhere where they could be sheltered and cloistered and not be next to the worldly filth. However... You can do all of those things and still be very worldly within. 
Martin Luther described his life in a monastery, how that when times of temptation came upon him and lust, that he would actually flog himself. When thoughts of lust came upon him, he would sometimes throw himself into a rose bush. Can you imagine that? Just to take his mind off of it. Well, you could sure tell when someone's been lusting, couldn't you? Comes in all beat up and bloody. I know what you've been thinking. But even he described that that didn't do him a lot of good. The thoughts were still there. The worldliness was still going on inside, even though he was separated locally from people who were doing those things. Jesus insisted that we live our lives not isolated from the world, but alongside of the filth of this world. That we right alongside the filthy mouths, right alongside the partiers. Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. Now that doesn't mean he hung out and got loaded with them. And it doesn't mean, oh great, I can cuss with them and party. You know, I want to become all things to all men. I was at a friend's house one night when I was a young Christian and actually he was having a party. And I said, what are you doing? He was getting loaded. He goes, I'm just becoming all things to all men, you know. I want to relate to all these people who are getting loaded. Share the love of the Lord with them, not condemn them. No, that's not what we're talking about. But you can be with them and still be separated in the midst of them, alongside of them. Separation is not outward. When I was a kid, I grew up under a merit kind of a system. Every year before Easter time, we had a time called Lent. Now, I don't know if we celebrated it accurately according to the church dictates or not, but let me tell you about my own personal experience and what my parents taught me. I was taught to abstain from things that I liked because that was called holiness. And I liked snicker bars, so for those few several weeks, I could not eat snicker bars. And I'd abstain from watching Rocky and Bullwinkle every afternoon. (laughs) Certain things that I like until that period was over, And because of my outward display of what I withheld from myself, I was supposedly to draw near unto the Lord. But it was always done as an outward show. I could tell my mom and my brothers and even my my friends at school, you know what I gave up for Lent? Well, let me tell you what I gave up for Lent. I haven't eaten for four weeks. (laughs) And it was merely outward, rather than something from my heart. One author was very honest when he tried to let his mind just surface, bring things to the surface when he heard the word holiness. What does it mean to be separated, to be holy? Now this is what he writes. He's very honest. He's not saying it's accurate. He's just simply saying what his mind came up with. Thinness. Hollow-eyed gauntness. Beards. Sandals, robes, long robes, stone cells, no sex, no jokes. Leaves me out. Frequent cold baths. Fasting. Hours of prayer. Wild, rocky deserts. 
getting up at 4 a.m. Clean fingernails. Stained glass. Self-humiliation. Now, he's not saying they're accurate, but many times we lump certain ideas and figures together. And it's interesting that he mentions beards, sandals, long robes, because if you be real honest, many people picture Jesus that way. Have you ever seen pictures of Jesus in people's homes? What does he look like? He's got long hair and a beard and long robes and sandals. Even though we know consciously that there's nothing holy or spiritual about sandals or long hair or beards or robes, because we picture Jesus that way, we lump them all together, don't we? When was the last time you pictured Jesus with just a mustache, blue jeans, riding a bicycle? See, to some of you, that's a shock. <gasps> because you have this little picture of what he's to be like. Not that blue jeans are ungodly. We have enough sense to know that a mustache or a bicycle, there's nothing wrong with it. But our little mental pictures of what Jesus is like or what holiness is like sometimes distracts us from what it really is. Holiness, separation, is not skin deep. It's not outward. It's not what a person looks like. Now, folks, this is a mistake we make when it comes to worship. I think we are guilty as the next. When it comes to worship, we gauge by the outward. We gauge a successful worship period because people stood up Two or three stood up while everybody sat down or people raised their hands and it was this great stirring. And we think, oh, the worship was powerful today. We're judging by the outward. Now, I know English people who are just as godly spiritual worshipers of God, yet because of their cultural inhibitions around a free group of people in worship, they would feel really weird. And they wouldn't want to raise their hands. And if people did, they would feel out of place. Not because doing that is wrong. In fact, it's beautiful to have that expression. But because of their culture, because of those kind of inhibitions that they were brought up with, that you were not brought up with, it's difficult for them. And yet we might look at that person and say, if he was really worshiping, he wouldn't be afraid to raise his hands. Last Sunday morning, I spoke in Osaka, Japan. And the pastor said, I want you to teach us on worship. And I specifically want you to teach us on raising hands. Well, I know that the Japanese are very subdued and they are not used to raising their hands and having a public display either. And so I shared with them after I talked to them about the freedom of raising their hands that it really doesn't make a difference. That raising someone's hands and saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus... can be just as parroted and mechanical and dead as someone who doesn't do any of that but is simply standing there quietly in his heart worshiping God. You can't judge worship outwardly. That it goes on inside the heart. And that's what we need to be careful with too. Is that we don't judge by outward appearances as someone is separated and holy and someone who is not. I think we strain at gnats and we swallow camels too. Okay, what is it? What is separation? The people and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. The word separated is a Hebrew word, badal. It means to divide. It means to disjoin. It means to make a difference. It's used literally and figuratively in the Bible. 
It speaks of people who are drawn aside as a special group. It speaks of cities that are, have a special designation like the cities of refuge. And it also is used figuratively. It's the same word when God said, My hand is not short that I cannot save, but your sins have separated between you and your God. It speaks of making a difference and being different. And it has two ideas. It has the idea of turning from something and turning to something, which is really the definition of salvation. Salvation is a two-sided movement. You just don't turn to God. You turn from sin and to God. That's faith in God. You just don't turn from bad ways, but you turn from sin you turn to God. It has two movements. Now, Salvation is often portrayed by many people with one or the other. I have heard messages like, just turn from sin and your wicked ways. And that's half of it. In California, there was a guy who frequented Huntington Beach Pier. We'd all go out surfing and people be eating hot dogs on the pier. And this guy used to come out and just yell at people. You sinners! He'd grab his Bible. He'd grab people by the arm. I'm amazed he didn't get beat up. And he was just condemning people. Turn, turn, turn from sin, you wretched generation. That's the good news. A few weeks ago, I came out of Pope Joy Hall. <gasps> yes, I went to a play. As I was coming out, there was someone standing up there ranting and raving. Turn from your wicked ways, you sinners! Yelling. He was so obnoxious. No one was listening to him. There was no fruit coming out of it. He was just condemning everyone. Salvation is twofold. You turn from, but you turn to something. Where's the love of God and the grace of God? Now that can be one-sided too. Because a lot of people say, what must I do to be saved? Well, just believe in God, man. Just turn to God. Just Go to God and ask Jesus into your heart and that's all it is. And so a lot of people think, all right, that's easy. That's what I did when I first became a Christian. I didn't know any better. I thought for the first few weeks of Christendom that I could just dope it up and I was smoking and I was drinking and I was praising the Lord, reading my Bible at the same time. Until a few weeks later, someone said, Skip, you know, you need to repent and turn to God. It's always twofold. You turn from, that's separation. You turn to, that is also separation. There is one thing worse than not walking with the Lord. You know what that is? That is not walking with the Lord and pretending to. That is coming to church, looking like the rest, but not walking with the Lord. That is spiritual hypocrisy, and that is yet worse than someone who just says, I am an atheist. I don't walk with God. I noticed something interesting in Japan this last week, and that is every restaurant has a display of food out in front of it. Now, it's plastic, but it looks identical. I still can't figure out how they do it. It has a cheeseburger in front of McDonald's, and it's there every day. It's a display. It's made out of plastic. It looks just like a cheeseburger. Or if it has a salad, it's got dressing on it and leafy lettuce. and It looks just like the real thing. Now, by the way, when you order something there, what you get looks just like the picture. Not like when you go to a restaurant here and you think, that's not what the picture looked like. 
But the food is plastic. It looks real. And if you put it next to the real thing, you probably couldn't tell, but there's one surefire way to tell. Bite into it. And it it will either taste like a juicy cheeseburger or you'll spit it out because it's plastic. There's one thing worse than bearing no fruit at all, and that is pretending to be like the real thing and not being like it. Now, Skip, are you sure that this first point is correct? That separation from the world is a law of spiritual life? I mean, Skip, I've heard preachers for years harp on this. And are you sure that just preachers didn't make this separation idea up just to pound people and and give guilt to people? Well, listen to Paul in 1 Thessalonians where he says, this is the will of God for you, even your sanctification, that you become more and more like Jesus, more and more separated, more holy, even your sanctification. In other words... This issue is not optional. It's not like an elective you can take in college. It is your major separation. Which brings us to another point, And that is that even though that is a law of spiritual life, even God's people can violate it and often do. I want you to look at verse 1 and 2 with me. When these things were done, the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel... The priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. And this is what they mean by it. Here's the qualification. With respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Jebusites, all the other ites that are mentioned here. That is, they were starting to adopt the same practices of the heathen people they were bringing into their own family. For they have taken some of their daughters as the wives for themselves and sons so that the holy seed is intermingled with the people of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and the rulers, in other words, the clergy has blown it the worst, has been foremost in this trespasses. Now, who are we talking about? Are we talking about a bunch of savages who've never heard the name of Yahweh? We're talking about God's people who just came out of oppression and bondage. Now, why did they go into bondage? Because they were doing stuff like this. Now, they just came out of bondage. God just delivered them and brought them back to the land, and they're doing it again. Why did they do it again? You answer that. That's a tough one. But it seems to be that we have a bent, because of our human nature, toward evil. Sure, God delivered them from Egypt. What happened? They started worshiping a golden calf in the middle of the desert. They came into the land under Joshua, crossed the Red Sea. The walls of Jericho fell down. Miracles were happening everywhere. What happens? The book of Judges happens. Sin cycle after cycle. The degeneration of the nation takes place until finally there's a captivity. Even in the New Testament, Jesus, in speaking to the church of Ephesus, says, yes, you have good things that you're doing. However, you have left your first love. And he tells the church, remember from where you are fallen. Repent and return. He was telling even the church that God's people often slept. 
even ministers slept, folks, as been so aptly seen in our nation. The world knows quite well there is never a plateau that you can reach where you're safe. Now, I wish I could say there is a plateau. I wish I could say, well, once you become senior pastor, there is no temptations. I'd be lying through my teeth. You never reach a plateau. In fact, the more closely you walk with the Lord, sometimes those temptations get harder and harder, more fierce. You could be an usher, a Sunday school teacher. You could be a kinship leader. You could even be on my staff. There's no plateau. You must constantly guard yourself. Now, this word, intermarriage. No, I'm sorry, not intermarriage. Intermingle. They're in the first couple verses. Verse 2. The holy seed is intermingled with the peoples of those lands. That's an Old Testament word. If you were to translate that into New Testament language, it would be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and 3. Carnality. Intermingling carnality. I'd like you to look with me at 1 Corinthians, please, chapter 2. In verse 14, it speaks about, in chapter 2, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. That's the first category, the unsaved man, the natural man. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Second man, the spiritual man. Verse 1, chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual, but as to carnal, as babes in Christ. Third category, carnal Christian. You know, we love categories. We categorize people. Are you Democrat? Are you Republican? Even we do it. Are you charismatic or fundamentalist? Are you pre-trib or post-trib? We love categories. God has a category too. He didn't say, are you pre or post? Are you mid or are you nothing? He says, are you spiritual or are you carnal? Now, if we're Christians, we're not natural men anymore. and We fall into one of two categories, the spiritual man or the carnal man. Carnal literally means fleshly. It describes a person who has been awakened to his need of Jesus Christ. He's accepted the Lord, but he is dominated by fleshly desires. And he tries to get back on target and he surrenders his life, but he's pulled again by the flesh. And he seems to be constantly serving fleshly desires, living in this period of regret and remorse instead of victory. Now, without going too deeply into it, I simply want from these chapters, from chapter 3, to describe a couple characteristics of this type of person. How can you spot, or how could you in your own life spot the characteristics of a carnal Christian? Number one is his diet. Verse 2, chapter 3. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. Even now you're still not able. The first thing is diet. You're not able to handle it. Literally, you cannot assimilate the food that I want to give unto you. The Corinthians were still on Gerber's. Paul wanted to give them meat, but they wanted to be bottle fed. They hadn't learned to feed themselves yet. They were in the infant stage. They had to have a little spoon and Paul had to sit down and give it to him. And they would point at the bananas and go, nah, means give me that one. They hadn't learned to use a fork and a knife yet and feed themselves. Paul was trying to get them mature so that they wouldn't depend on just a once a week meal spoon-fed to them on Sunday mornings or Thursday nights, but they would learn to use a fork and a knife and be effective in feeding their own selves. These 
could not take the meat of the word. They wanted the milk of entertainment. These were interested far more in uh, Christian movies and concerts and being entertained, the new toys, rather than just the word, the meat. So diet is one of them. What are you hungry for? Second of all, another characteristic, as we see in the next verse, is selfishness. For you are still carnal, whereas there is envy, strife, divisions among you. Are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? One says, I'm a Paul. Another says, I'm of Apollos. Are you not carnal? There was division in the church. The carnal Christian loves to argue. Loves to have all the attention on himself or herself. Now, you know what it's like if you have children. A baby is usually not happy unless he is the center of attention when there's a group of people. Have friends over, and if you're not paying attention to your son or daughter, they will make sure that you will. And they are happy when you pay attention to them. And if you don't, they are unhappy and they squall. And there's a tension and a division between the mom and the dad. So it is with a carnal, fleshly, unseparated Christian. Wants attention drawn to himself and can cause division. This kind of a person finds faults with people. He is a sin sniffer, a fault finder. He can tell you all that is wrong with people or with his church or with the worship group or with his community. Yet he offers nothing to change that. Just good at finding fault. That is carnality. It's interesting that in describing carnality in this verses, Paul doesn't say a word about smoking cigarettes or drinking. Again, I'm not espousing any of them. But those particulars I'm not interested in. I'm interested in a heart that is pursuing God. The other things are incidentals. Not that it's not shown outwardly. Of course it is shown outwardly. We show outwardly what's going on inwardly. But the real question is, do we have a heart that's panting and pursuing after God? That is the spiritual man. Now, turn back with me to Ezra. And we'll conclude with a few verses. I want you to notice something that Separation will determine your own spiritual life and the life of your church. And the reason God gives commands for separation is for your own good and the good of your fellowship. That is so important. Please notice with me uh, verse 10. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are going to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, which they have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons. And never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat of the good of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever. Now Ezra says, look, Lord, you gave us this command for our own good. He's quoting several scriptures. Now you don't have to turn to it, but I'm going to read a couple little verses out of Deuteronomy 7. Listen to what God says here. You shall not make marriages with them. You will not give your daughter to their son nor take their daughter for your son. 
For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods so that the anger of the Lord would be aroused and would destroy you suddenly. And God goes on to say, I'm seeking your good. I'm giving you these commands not to have you live a restricted, boring life. I'm giving you these commands because I love you. It's for your own good. God is often thought of so poorly that He wants to restrict us, that He wants us to have abundant boredom, insipid living, when God gives us commands for our own good. God's desire is that we live a fulfilled, satisfied, rich life. And so He's given us laws, commands, the Bible, His precepts, and in following His precepts, we find fulfillment and satisfaction in life. And in going away from them, we bring hurt upon ourselves. God says, I know what is going to happen if you join yourself to the daughters of these lands and the people of these lands and you become too chummy with them. Now, you've got to live next to them, but if you become too chummy with them, you could become like them. God warned them over and over again about this. Let me briefly tell you what happens in a worship uh, practice of the Canaanites. Now, this is why God commanded the children of Israel such a strict command. This is how the Canaanites would worship. The Canaanites believed in Baal, the god of fertility, and so all of their activity was centered around fertility. And a Canaanite would often sacrifice their babies to appease the god Baal. They would take their babies and sacrifice them alive, burning them to death. If the mother showed any emotion or disgust, the offering was worthless. She was to offer her baby straight-faced to appease the God and the gods so that fertility could take place in their land because they were agrarians, they were farmers. Along with this was lewd sexuality. In the temple of Baal were male prostitutes and female prostitutes. If you were a man, you joined yourself to a female whore, prostitute. If you were a woman, you joined yourself to a man. As sexual intercourse went on, a chant was said. And the person would say, just as fertility is taking place now, May my land be fertile, may my cattle be fertile, and may all my household be fertile. That was the activity of Baal worship in the Canaanites. Now you can understand why God says, rid them. And especially don't bring them unto yourselves. And that's what the leaders mean when they said, they are starting to practice the abominations of the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hittites. And that's why Ezra tore his garment, thinking, ah, this is what brought us into captivity. Don't we realize that God gave us these commands for our own good because God loves us? You know, I notice that children often misunderstand their mom and dad. That their mom and dad will tell them to do something for their highest good, and yet the kids think that mom and dad's trying to cramp their style. Oh, my parents are a dud, man. They won't let me stay out till three in the morning. I used, to, I used to get upset when I was a little kid and my mom said, eat your vegetables. It's for your own good. I said, mom, I'd prefer M&M's, please. Can't have them. You're going to eat this. You're going to eat all of it and I'm going to watch you because it's for your own good. Oh. I misunderstood their motivations. It was for my own good. Now, if we follow the commands of God, we're smart. If we don't, we really are stupid. And you're hurting yourself. There are spiritual laws just like there are physical laws. Take the law of gravity. 
Now you might say, you know, I think this law of gravity is too restrictive and it's stupid and I don't choose to obey it. And you know, I'd rather fly. So you jump off the peak of our building and try to fly and splat. You didn't hurt the law of gravity, you hurt yourself. It's not wise to go against an established law. And there's a law in the scripture. You reap what you sow. If you reap to the flesh, or if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. God does it for our own good. I heard a story a few years ago of a young man, 17 years old, named William. Had a hassle with his parents. Wanted to live with his girlfriend, so he ran away from home with his girlfriend. A few weeks before, he had gone to the hospital because he felt sick and they'd ran some tests and they found that he had a loathsome disease. The police were chasing him down. William found out about it. He knew that the police were after him and he thought, these police are trying to get me and restrict my lifestyle and my parents are trying to restrict my lifestyle. Now, they were looking for him to save his life. And he misinterpreted as they are looking for me to restrict my life. God is searching for us to be separate, to be different from the world. Not to restrict our lives, but to save our lives. Now, when it comes to this issue of worldliness or separation, it doesn't matter if you're Japanese, German, or American. It applies to all. I guess the best way to sum it up is the words of David. As a deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul after thee, O God. I'm searching for you like I am a dying man. That's the real issue, is that is your heart pursuing God totally. Then all of the incidentals really fall by the wayside. They just don't really matter. Your outward activity will fall in line. But the real issue is, do you love Him with all of your heart, all of your soul? Let's pray. Lord, some of us have lost our fresh delight in Your love. We have intermingled our lives with the lives of the Canaanites. And what's so beautiful about that, Lord, although there might be astonishment and it might hurt Your heart, there is always forgiveness. There is always that ability to come back and make right choices to become separate again. Lord, at this point, I'm praying for people who are in this assembly who both know You and both and also do not know You. They have never made a commitment to You. And right now, I'm lifting them up. Father, I pray that those people who have looked at Christianity, at following God as a restriction, they really have not known what Christianity is all about. You're seeking to save their life. You have given us these things for our own good, that we might live a rich, full, satisfying life. It's for our own good. Lord, I pray that you would press that and convince the hearts of those who have never made a commitment to you, who've been on the border, who have watched, who have come with their saved wives, but they themselves have never made a commitment, or wives with their saved husbands, but they've never made a commitment. Lord, I know there's people here today who don't know you, and I pray that you'd rescue them. Thank you, Lord.